Last week, we began a new sermon series on heirloom seeds. And uh, the concept behind, I'll just, you know, I'll make it simple. The concept is that we, we have these heirlooms in the spirit, yeah. okay, that have been handed down to us through the generations from our spiritual ancestors. Um, lessons that they've learned, things that they have come to, revelations that they have received. And every generation has a tendency to want to reinvent the wheel or have their own seat, have their own way of doing things because, you know, it's, it's fresh and it's new. And that is healthy and that is good and that's vibrant and that is creative and that is good. But we need to make sure that just because something is new or rather something may be outdated in terms of chronology, um, that we don't lose the lessons that have been handed down. That's good. Because I have been around in the faith long enough that I can tell you about every 10 years, there is a new flashy teaching, which is good. And every 10 years, there's a new big ministry that pops up on the screen. Okay. Um, I, I remember when everyone was running to um, Toronto. Then I remember everyone running to Brownsville. Then I remember everyone running to uh, Ruth Heflin down in Virginia. Then I remember everyone running to uh, Bethel. Uh, and I remember everyone running to IHOP. These are not bad things. These are good, godly ministries. But they brought something new. And many of them held on to some cherished things of the past. And we just got to make sure that we don't get a spiritual AD day. Right? Always run into the new thing and forgetting about the, some of the lessons of the past. That's Amen? Good. Good. I mean, it's, it's an important thing in this, you know, get now Amazon Prime will deliver in two hours. It's culture that we live in now, right? To cherish the ancient past. To cherish the ancient seeds. And so, uh, taking a look uh, at all of this, uh, today's uh, sermon is an heirloom seed going back to the first century. And, and to be fair, it's really like the first, second, and third century, but... You know, for typing, it was better just the first century. It's, it's a seed, an heirloom seed of a sense of urgency. Okay? A sense of urgency of the things of the Lord. Uh, and so what we have here is this. You know, what, is, what does it mean to be urgent? It's just like the dictionary here, right? Take a look at this. Uh, a state or situation requiring immediate action and immediate attention. This isn't like, oh, I'll get to it. This is, it must be done immediately, right now. Right now. Second, take a look down at the, the bottom there. Uh, earnest and persistent in response to a pressing situation. Persistence, patience, long-suffering. You keep going. You keep chipping away. You keep doing it because it is a pressing situation. So we have the, uh, those four people that I wanted to just invite up to just read from the word. Come on down. It would be great. Um. And I think I have them in some kind of order. And I'll put it this way. When you're listening to the, the verses or if you're following along, try to gain an understanding of what could be the urgency of the first century and what some people are writing about. What is the urgency? Try to figure it out. So the first uh, one I have in my notes is uh, Hebrews chapter 10, 24-25. All right, thank you. Let us consider how we may spur one another Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Thank you. Come on. Matthew 24, verse 44. Oh, yeah. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Come on. Revelation 22, 12. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Last but not least, first Peter chapter four, verse seven. The end of the world is coming soon, therefore be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. Alright, so what what's the, the sense of urgency by Jesus by John by Peter and the mysterious writer of Hebrews, either Paul or uh, well, what was the theory I was reading about? Apollos, right? Apollos, yeah. What, what was what, what's the urgency? End of the age. End of the age and the return of Jesus. All right. 
So this is like that's the linchpin here. It's this, that this sense of urgency uh, that we need to grab a hold of, that I personally think has been lost in the church, is Jesus is returning. And is returning soon. So people get ready and do the work of a disciple. Do the work of a follower of Jesus. Now the sense of urgency is this. It is clear that the first believers had a sincerity and a sincere belief that the time is at hand for the kingdom, the gospel to go forth. It was a sense of urgency. It does not happen next week. It does not happen when I get uh, back from vacation. It does not happen only when I get out of work. It is for now. When I go to the restaurant, when I go to work, when I get my gas pumped, when I'm walking the streets, it is now. The time is now. The kingdom of God is now. Okay? That's good. And so I just want to clarify for some people that may not understand the more modern Christianese when we're talking about the kingdom. When we're talking about the kingdom now, like the kingdom of God to be on earth, what are we referencing? We're referencing, of course, the gospel. The gospel. And the gospel is... Repentance, salvation. There can be no salvation until there's repentance. You repent, you are saved, and you make Jesus Lord. But when we talk about the gospel, what we also are talking about is the full gospel. See, gospel means good news. And yes, it's fantastic, unbelievably good news that your soul is saved. But the full gospel is the fullness of the kingdom. That's good. And can you believe it? Because of the power of the Holy Spirit, it's more than just, quote unquote, just salvation. It is a matter of healing. It's a matter of deliverance. It's a matter of breaking chains. It's a matter of people getting out of wheelchairs. It's a matter of casting out demons out of people. It is the full gospel. And the early believers in the first century they had an urgency. Amen. See, I believe that too many Christians settle. We settle on the fact that, you know what, God came to save me. And God came to save you, period. End of sentence. Too many believers do that. God came to save you so that you can have life and life abundantly, right? He came to save you to empower you. Not just to be saved from hell's fire, but that you would manifest being a son and daughter of God upon earth. To carry his authority. To carry his power. To show people the miracle working power of Jesus. We need to get that in the church again. But here's the thing. Uh, Before we get that kind of empowerment, what what essentially needs to happen is before the empowerment of bringing the kingdom to earth, what we really need here is actually an unction, a a, a spirit inside of us. A lot of times when we talk about an unction, we talk about the unction of the Holy Spirit, right? That motivation inside that's going to draw you out to do something. And I, I believe that is absolutely true. But I think what needs to happen is the church needs to learn about an unction of urgency again. Like there needs to be a spirit inside of us that's like an indwelling that's saying, come on. In the twinkling of an eye, you'll be caught up. We'll be likened unto the days of Noah when people are buying and selling and having children. And like that, the Lord's return. Okay? Urgency. Uh, and so what I believe here with, with the early church is that they had an urgency um, about the kingdom of God, the Lord's return, because they had an appropriate understanding of things. Come on. Like, let's just, but I mean, I, I, I'm not going to ask for you to raise your hand and tell me. I don't think we need to do that. Just think about it right now. When was the last time you preached the gospel to someone? That's good. Amen. I don't want any answers. This is for you, man. When was the last time you preached the gospel, or you shared the gospel with someone, anyone. That's good. When was the last time you went up to someone and said, hey man, I see you're down and out. I 
I see that you have a broken arm or you have a migraine, remember, let me lay hands on you right now. I'm Christian. This is what the Bible tells us to do. Is that okay? Can I do that? And pray for that person. Seriously, like we gotta think about this. If if we if if we wanna go back to these heirloom seeds, where is your sense of urgency? It's good. Now, this is, I, I believe the early church had a sense of understanding because well, what's going on here is this: like the urgency comes out of an understanding, and the understanding comes out of the love of Jesus. That's right. Like if if you really understand the love of Jesus. You cannot contain it. Come on. Right? Like if you really understand what he's done for you and what he can do for your neighbor and how he wants to set them free, you're not going to be able to hold that to yourself. Amen. So they had a true, not just boyfriend Jesus. I'm talking about like a deep reverence of love of Jesus inside of them that had to get out. Uh, it comes from an understanding of what Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, what He did for you. Now look, I, I mean, uh, these are, this is another heirloom seed. You go back to like maybe the 70s and 80s and maybe even like the, the time of the Civil War. Because you know, there's like these cycles to it. But man, this is, this is, this is like the old school preaching of the reality. The absolute reality of the penalty of living a life according to the laws of sin and death. Yeah. Like, I, I'm not saying to dwell in that place. I'm not saying dwell in the place of the wrath of God. Like, no, not, don't dwell there. But there's a, a healthy remembrance that without Jesus, lake of fire. Amen. And if we have that understanding when we see someone in the grocery store and we see a loved one and we see people that have not experienced Jesus, if you have an understanding of the fullness of the biblical timeline, you are going to be urgent. Amen. We're going to be urgent. Right? That's right. Now look, uh, I think what, what happens here, I'm just going to speak out of my own experience uh, in, in spiritual matters. I think essentially what happens is sometimes when we have been saved a long time, when we've been born again for a long time, um, what has a tendency to happen uh, is that we, uh, we begin to get lulled to sleep a little bit. That's good. We're saved. Yeah. In, in that comfort and in that rejoicing, there can be a lullaby that happens. Where you're lulled to sleep and you forget about the reality of hell. You get you 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 you, you forget about the reality of living a life away from him. Come on, Dave. Because we forget. Look, I, I want to say this. Because I think it's an important word for the 21st century. The, the preaching of sin and death is not oppression, guys. One cannot truly understand the magnitude of grace without first a healthy remembrance of the alternative. Come on. Right? This, this is like the old school preachers, the old school Jonathan Edwards, the old school Charles Spurgeon. These are people who are like, we cannot fully reside and understand grace until you have a healthy, not an abusive, but a healthy understanding of what the alternative of not having a life with the cross is. The early church 100% got that. The reason why they got that so much is because they're persecuted. The reason why they got that is because this is new to the scene. Uh, and there isn't like an early Christian like network of conferences to go to and, and, and YouTube channels to listen to. It is like, this is fresh. This is new. Oh my gosh, I would have been in hell's fire, but now I've been redeemed. I have an urgency to preach the gospel. And uh, I believe another piece of the understanding that, that happened here is that all of this really helped create... An urgency for the Lord's return. I mean, are you guys urgent? Come on. Like, urgent, like the Lord's going to return. Like a sense and unction of like he's coming back. Amen. I mean, if I take a, a macro view, an eagle, eagle's view of the church, the big C church, I'd be like, we're not urgent. We're urgent to like 
get everything that we want and need while we're on earth. But you're urgent to be able to preach preach in a church or you're urgent to be able to get on a a worship stage or you're urgent to to, to get your job and your career met and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, well, you're urgent that Jesus is returning. Oh, and by the way, when he returns, the prophets say it's the great and terrible day of the Lord. Come on. It's great for us. It's terrible for the Lord's enemies. Come on. Like, it's a great and terrible day. All right. Look, uh, the, the sense of urgency, as I was getting at here, is, I, I believe, was it, it is and was a byproduct of the culture of the time. Uh, and so I want to just take a little, little time just to kind of explain a little bit about the culture of the first century and what it meant a little bit to be a follower of this Mashiach, this Messiah, this Christos, this Christ. Many of the first century... If not really the majority, most of them uh, were Jewish believers in Yeshua, right? Jewish believers in Jesus. Uh, by the beginning of the second century, uh, what we start to see here is more and more Gentiles in the Roman Empire are hearing this message. And they're gravitating towards it. They're believing in it. And it comes together. Now, this is a beautiful thing, but it's also a difficult thing. Uh, because the early church had a difficulty navigating two diverse groups that historically, before Jesus and even after Jesus, and even during the times of Jesus, were antagonistic towards each other. Okay? I mean, if you were a Gentile in the first century, and you're Jewish, you are not to eat with them because they're unclean. And then if you're a Gentile underneath Rome, Jews are being persecuted. And now you're all one Messiah. How do we navigate this? So Paul needs to instruct on this type of relations. And actually, if you read the book of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Romans, like a healthy portion of that ink is spent on this one issue. How do we rectify the olive tree? How do we bring Gentiles and, and, and Jews together in one family? I would argue it this way. It would be like today uh, where we would need an apostle to give true understanding on the division between blacks and whites. Come on, man. Let's be real. Sunday morning is the most segregated day in America. True. It is by far the most segregated place in America. White church, got the black church, you have a couple that do a nice kind of blending. But by and large, it's the most segregated time in America is Sunday morning. I mean, it's in some regards an atrocity. Now, it's beautiful that I have cultural expressions, but I hope you share my heart here. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think uh, the antagonism goes deeper than black and white relations. I think it goes into political relations. The Democrat church, the Republican church. The ones that like are in the middle or whatever. I mean, look, just how would Paul speak into this? I think I actually in the, in the 21st century, just going to be real with you. I teach the social sciences. We talk about this all the time. I actually think the biggest antagonism and conflict uh, that many of us are even aware of, it's not black, white. It's, it's not Republican, Democrat. It's, it's not Jew, Gentile. It's not, what else do I have on here? I guess that's about it. Uh, the, the, I think the real one, honestly, it's just, it's just, people aren't really talking about it. It's really socioeconomic. Yeah. Socioeconomics is, is, is even surpassing in many regards uh, the, the black and white, white divide. Uh, I really do think that, um, but that's my personal opinion. Whatever case would be, Paul has an answer. Paul had an answer to the first century church and Paul has an answer today. The answer uh, by Paul is there are no hyphens in the kingdom. There's no hyphens in the kingdom. Like there's no black Christian and there's no white Christian because there isn't necessarily a Jewish Christian and a Gentile Christian. We're all one Messiah. Now in the time of the first century, Paul actually says, but each of you have a special calling, but there's no hyphen. The calling, Jews are to be a light to the Gentiles. And the calling, the Gentiles are to provoke the Jews to jealousy. They're together, but they have special callings. And so I, as a white male from suburbia, I have a certain calling. And someone who lives in the city uh, has a certain calling, right? We all have certain callings, but we do not have hyphens. The thing that erases the hyphen and it gives you an appropriate identity is the understanding that we are, in fact, one in Messiah. 
We're a one in Christ. There's not rich Christians and poor Christians, right? There's not female Christians and male Christians. There's one in Messiah. And that Paul is very clear on that. And he'll go on to say, now stop the bickering. Gentiles, stop bickering about the Jews. Jews, stop bickering about the Gentiles. Stop bickering. And the way in which he seals that bickering is you have been sealed by a promise by the Holy Spirit. To the day of redemption. But he also says, how can you bicker? How can you spend your time on the bickering? For the Lord is at hand. When we bicker, no one's preaching the gospel. When you're dealing with all the the, 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 the sores, the, uh, the problems of inside the church, no one is preaching the kingdom. Newsflash. If you're preaching the kingdom... And you're sharing the gospel. And you're praying for people. There's no time. Come on. That's good. Come on. Say that again. There's no time for people. Amen. You want, you, want, you want division in the church? It's because you're not doing the job of the church. Because when you're working, a worker doesn't have time to bicker. There's a job to get done. And I would say this. If you are a person that bickers, and if you're in a church that bickers, it's because they are not urgent in their spirit to bring the kingdom of God to them. Is that simple? First century, they had bicker. They had difficulty. Paul says, come on. In a twinkling of an eye, the Lord shall return. There's a larger task at hand. The gospel, the kingdom, and the Lord's return. But here's the thing, that, that's, 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 a, whew, that's a crazy culture. That's a crazy culture. It's a culture of urgency. And it's a culture that I believe the Western church doesn't have. The third world church has it. Yeah, and that's why it's growing. Well, Christian culture in the first century was so extremely foreign to the Romans. Okay? Like, we, you can't even, like, we're so lost in the weeds in this. You got to go back. You got to dig up the, those old wells. You got to take a look at the heirlooms. You got to see what was going on here. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, Romans didn't even have a grid for this stuff. I was just watching a documentary on uh, the Vikings. And they had this scene when the, the Vikings go to England for the first time. They've never interacted with Christian Europe. They go into a, a house of worship and they're there. They're taking all the gold. Taking all like you know, the communion plates and all that kind of stuff. And one of the Vikings looks on a wall and he sees a picture of Jesus on a cross. And he says, <laughs> their God died on a cross? He must be really weak. See, the Romans saw this like, wait, you have a God that died for you? We die for our gods. And actually, the pagan gods, they, they actually play tricks on humans. Believers are saying, no, 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 like there's only one God and he died for you so you can have a relationship and union with him and he'll never trick you. They're like, huh? What are you talking about? Come on. Uh, another big one uh, in, the, in the culture of the first century was uh, the notion of sexual idolatry. I mean, the Romans and the Greeks, they actually had like prostitutes that were like re- religious prostitutes, right? In the, in the temples. Come on. And you pay your money to, to engage in sexual activity and it would be likened unto a worship unto, unto some demonic being. Christians are like, well, that is completely horrendous. Not only is that horrendous, but thinking about another person other than your spouse is likened unto it. Come on. Romans are like, what? what are you talking about? The gods are pleased. No, God is not pleased. The most perplexing one for the early church, actually people don't really uh, write about too much, but it's one of the most perplexing ones is this. Messiah, Christ, Tears down social hierarchies. This was probably the single most difficulty for, for the Roman mind. Wait, 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 there's no longer rich or poor? Like there isn't a social strata? Nope. Wait, like rich people will wash the feet of poor people? <laughs> nah. Jews and Gentiles together? Are you kidding me? That would never happen. Masters and slaves? Everyone's brothers? Come on. Wait, wait, you, you, you view other females that are not in your 
family as sisters. This was so sincere that it perplexed the Romans so much that they actually thought that when a Christian male and a Christian female got married that they were committing incest. The bond of family, the bond of brothers and sisters were so tight they could not differentiate between, like, uh, the, the, uh, is she really related to you? No, she's not related to me, but by the spirit, she is. But you have always interacted with her as brothers and sisters, and you view her parents kind of like your parents. Like, what's going on? Says, That's the kingdom. And Romans like, no, you guys are just committing incest. No, we're not committing incest. That's how perplexing it was. That's amazing. Uh, not only that, like, they ate together. They shared finances together. Shared burdens together. Get a little, a little taste. Here's uh, Emperor Julian uh, in 350 around AD. Says this about Christians. So he's, he's not a believer yet. Like he's, he's actually known as the apostate because he leaves the, the, the church to become pagan, etc. So this is a direct quote. Christianity has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care of the burial of the dead. See that? Early believers were really taking special care and giving honor and homage to the body, right? Like to, to take care of when, when buried. This is brilliant. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar. And that the Christians care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help we should render them. You see this. The Jewish people who are not believers in Jesus, the Jewish community is taking care of their own. A Jew will not go hungry. A Jew will not have to beg. It will not happen. Okay. Christians. Christians will not have to beg. Christians will not want. Oh, and by the way, we're also going to surrender so much that we'll take care of those that are not even our own. And the emperor has taken notice. And he says, it's an embarrassment. How wonderful would it be again Come on, in the 21st century if the government could say how embarrassing it is that Christians adopt more people? How embarrassing it is that Christians will take women who are looking to have an abortion and say, come to my house and we'll take care of you. How powerful would it be? But it's not going to happen until there's a spirit of urgency. Come on, that's good. And the early church had a spirit of urgency. Uh, the result of this new culture that's coming is, is going to be quite problematic. For example, Jewish believers in Jesus are going to be kicked out of the synagogues um, for apostasy. Like they're believing that God came as a man. That's like big no-no. Okay. So what many people forget is that the early believers in Christ, most of them are Jewish, and they are retaining their time in the synagogue. Amen. They did. We know that for an absolute fact. But over time, the Jewish leaders are like, all right, you guys are just going too far out there. Apostasy, you have left the Jewish faith because you believe that God came in human form, you're out. And they had to leave. Now, Gentile Christians had their own problem. Their big problem is they have left paganism. And so Rome thought that they have forsaken the gods. And if they've forsaken the gods, maybe that's why Rome is having financial problems. You know how we say, like, we need to turn our heart to God, humble ourselves before him, and the Lord shall hear our land? Guess what? The pagans are saying similar things. The reason why Rome has monitoring inflation right now, and the reason why the barbarians are knocking on the gates of Rome, is because we have forsaken the gods. We need to call upon them again. And I bet it's these Christians that are causing the problem. Okay? I mean, that's Nero right there, right? That's Nero. You know, marching Christians to lions. Oh, or maybe not. Maybe the Christians are planning a revolt. They keep talking about this kingdom. Wow. Here's the result. Here's, here's the whole purpose of this, right? To be a Christian in the first century was to be completely 100% against the culture of the day. Okay, God, we all know that. But here's the thing. Because of that, I believe it helped promote a spirit of urgency. I think the church hasn't gotten that far yet. Look, uh, let's, let's, let's take a look at some things here. Uh, today, we take a look at the Western world. There is a 
moral and legal code that is based on Judeo-Christian values. I know you're like, well, Christianity's under attack. It's like, yeah, it's under attack. I mean, it is under attack. It's like, you're not being marched to lions. You're not getting your head cut off by ISIS. Someone makes fun of you. I mean, it's, it's, it's persecution. It's not real persecution. It's good. Come on. I know that the Christian culture is under attack. I agree with that. When you have to have your head in the sand and think not. It's under attack. But it's like, come on, people. You know, toughen up. You know? You're more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. You can handle someone making fun of you. Get over yourself and move on. You're not going to have that unless you have a spirit of urgency. Jesus is returning. All right, well, here's the thing. I think, by and large, you may disagree with me, and it's difficult, but uh, what time is it, though? What is it? Okay. Um, you may disagree with me on this, but, but here's, here's what, what we have. I, I believe that our response, this is, I, this is my heart. I, you can disagree. This is a place where you can agree to disagree. All right? You can agree to disagree. This is just my take on it. Some of you are not going to be on board, but that's okay. It's cool. I'm the one with my take. The response to the attack on the moral code of the Judeo-Christian ethic has created a church that has responded in a certain way. And I believe today this is how largely the church responds. Man, if we change the culture, we can change the people. Yeah, sure. First century says this. If we transform the people, then the culture and the empire and nation will be transformed. Come on. There is a difference. Amen. Yeah. You can preach all day and vote all day to get rid of a law that you don't think is in accordance to Christian ethos in the government. Yeah. Go for it. It's not going to do anything. <laughs> I mean, Dr. Martin Luther King knew this. You need to change the hearts of men. And then there'll be no need for a changing of law. That's right. That's good. right, 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 right. Look, if, if abortion is now illegal, I am telling you right now, women are going to get an abortion. That's right. But if you preach the gospel and the kingdom to a woman that wants an abortion, she's not going to have an abortion. It is a point of reference. That's good. It's how we perceive it. Okay? I think they're both good. I, I think you should be petitioning governmental systems, absolutely. But not at the expense of transforming the people first. See, the one system, the system of today, puts systems and structures first. In the first century, they put people first. You, you hear what I'm saying? Modern Christianity puts protests Governor, governments largely before the protesting against the spirit that lies inside of a human being that needs to get saved. It's messy stuff, and that's why we don't see the kingdom. Because you're trying to go at war with a principality of government instead of going at war to the individual souls of men. And it's a big problem. Look, what's really crazy here is the first century model worked. It worked! It's unbelievable. I mean, take a look here, first and third century. I, I know there's like different debate on, on how many followers were actually with Jesus at the end of this, but we know that there's 120. Some people say, well, there's, you know, there's thousands, and yeah, well, that's in the book of Acts, but really, you know, in, in that regard, you got one of Jesus' followers, really, one of his disciples at the foot of the cross. I mean, maybe he was down to one, and his mom, you know? But largely, scholars are saying, about the time of the death of Jesus, about 120. But what happens here is by, by the first century, the writing of the apostles, that 120 goes to 10,000. Mm-hmm. Within 70 years. Uh, that's 10,000 out of a total Roman Empire population of 60 million, which is 0.0017%. Okay. By the second century, or sorry, by the third century, uh, we see 200,000, jumps up to 0.3%. 0.36%. By 300 AD, you're up to 6 million. Something happened. 
between the third and fourth centuries, or the 200s to the 300s, that was an explosion. An explosion. By 350, scholars will say it's, it's, it's probably the majority of the population already. Now, you could argue, like, how many of them are really born again? How many are believing? How many are cultural Christians? I, I get that. But what I want you to see here is this. The first century believers, they appear to be weak. They appear to be powerless. They have no money. They have no buildings. They have no social status. They have no backing by the government. And they have no respect from the educated elite. But yet, rapid growth. Rapid growth. And I believe it's because the early church had an urgency. And the urgency produced an unction. Or rather, they had an urgency and an unction. And this is it. The unction of the Holy Spirit birthed an urgency of the kingdom in the early church. The Holy Spirit was dwelling in such fire that people were compelled to have a sense of urgency to bring the kingdom of God to earth, to see people healed, to see people delivered, to see people saved. Come on. That's good. Their urgency came out of an indwelling of the Holy Ghost. Come on, dude. And I believe, looking at this, I believe that there's a bit of a formula here. And I don't like formulas because it's like so cheesy, but I've got a formula. Okay. Here's the formula. If I take a look at the early church, what do I see? I see this. One, they had limited infrastructure and no legal support, and that promoted a true reliance on the Holy Spirit. Okay? If you have no governmental structures, if you have no money, if you have no legal power, you have to 100% rely on the Holy Spirit. I don't mean like let's invite the Holy Spirit so we can all pray in tongues and have a prophetic word. I mean their life, their ministry, their day-to-day action was completely dependent upon the presence of the Holy Spirit to direct, to speak, to do things. That's good. Church today puts more power and more emphasis on business models, on trends, on business practices than they do the Holy Spirit. Not all churches, but a lot. Okay? The first century, you don't have that option. It's only Holy Spirit. Look, a church that resides in the presence of the Lord can do a lot more than a church that's not. Amen? Come on. Number two. The early church was primarily focused on the transformation of individuals, not on earthly governmental infrastructure. This is a, a, a tough one. Actually, I have it in my notes. Let me clarify. And some of you may not even know what we're talking about, but some other people in ministries know what we're talking about. Okay? Look, government infrastructure that was supported by the church, or the church creating government infrastructure, didn't exist until the advent of the Catholic Church. We know how that went. Not good. I'm going to be honest. I have a deep concern. I have a very deep concern for evangelical America. That we may be, in fact, making the same mistake as the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church was very successful in bringing the kingdom, their version of it. And it led to persecution. It led to burning people at stakes. It it, it led to kicking out Jews out of Spain, England, Germany, all of Europe. It led to that. They're going to reign on earth. No, you're not. Jesus is going to reign on earth until the coming of Jesus. Then you shall be judges and priests with him. Now, it's a difference of focus because I I want to clarify. Look, we we as a church support praying for the various cultural mountains, which is very much like governmental structure kind of stuff. I 100% believe that we have a power, an authority, a mandate to pray that believers will infiltrate Hollywood. And that believers will infiltrate Washington, D.C. And believers will infiltrate the school system. 110%. I am with it. This is the point of clarity. But we have to be careful. If we put all of our attention on the structure, the tendency is we forget the people. Come on. I I need you to get this. 100%. Pray for the cultural mountains and infiltration. 100%. But do not allow it to make you forget about the woman on the street that needs to be transformed. 
Look, the early church had this. Their time, their energy, their resources were not spent on transforming man-made structures. It was on transforming people who would then transfer society. I, I challenge you to find it. I can't find it. They're all like, go after Rome! That's right, go after the Roman people. Come on. And then see what happens to Rome after them. Come on. Yeah. It's just not there. It's not like, hey, we need to make sure that the fishing industry in the Galilee is more respectful towards Jewish believers. No! They're like, go to the Galilee and preach the gospel, and they're all going to get saved. Come on. That can only happen if there's urgency. There's a belief that they have to because Jesus is going to return. Amen. So here, I have it in my notes. A matter of a difference of focus. Fixating on transforming laws and governments often can cause one to neglect and forget the women on the street that needs to be transformed. Amen. And it's really going to rub some people the wrong way, but oh well. It, it can also lead to a place that will actually, we will be at risk. We'll be at risk of viewing the government as the the one that is the article of transformation. And not Jesus being the article of transformation. That's good. Come on. That's that 1% message from a while ago. Like you, look, look, you got government that is doing social justice. Cool. That's awesome. Uh, but it doesn't come with the gospel. Come on. Amen. Now, who's the one that's doing the real transforming? That's right. All right. Third part of the formula is this. Time is urgent. Is urgent. This is what they believe. They believe that they need to rely on the Holy Spirit. They believe that we need to focus on people opposed to structures. Three, there is an urgency. Jesus is returning any day. Any day. I'm coming quickly. You will be caught up in twinkling an eye. There is a pulse and a feeling. Oh my gosh, the Lord is going to return and I need to get people saved. Can we have the worship team coming down, please? Or I'd rather just Jamie White, just Jamie and Maggie come up. Please. All right. Here's the thing as we, we're closing up here. Look, it's been 2,000 years. There's still no return. Hey, it's like 2,000 years. There's no return of Jesus. Yet. You have to understand, after 2,000 years, it's like, Lord, we've been waiting for 2,000 years. Look, this can lull a church to sleep. Like, why, why are you pressing? I mean, people have been pressing for 2,000 years. How come we're not pressing now? It's like, well, it's 2,000 years, they're coming. But, but I think this is, this is the part, man. This is the part. We need to get that sense of urgency in the church again. Amen? Amen? It's just it's an heirloom seed that's been neglected. It's been replaced on how do you get everything you want now in the kingdom? Paul is like, I can't get everything I want because I'll tell you what, the ultimate thing that I have is salvation. And I would even lay down my salvation if it means I can even yet win one of my brethren to the, to the kingdom. Amen. Amen. Yeah, this is powerful stuff, I think. Amen. First century urgency did something. And it should and would do something now if we adopted it read it. It's this. It promotes a seriousness. If you just bring it down the, the guitar a bit. It promotes a seriousness of the gospel. Jesus is returning and therefore there is a call of the gospel and the kingdom that needs to go forth. He's returning and if he's returning, my goodness, I need to be seen ready doing the business of my father. Right? Because it's the great terrible day. I believe that this spirit of urgency of bringing the kingdom and the kingdom of God and the return of the Lord creates a desire for a sanctified life and holy living. It will produce an emphasis on the kingdom, on healings, on deliverance, setting people free. Because you know that the Lord is near. Be gentle to all. He is coming back. Look, in America, we have it good. We have it really, really good. But not, I'm sorry. We have it not good. We have it great. 
We have no real persecution yet. We're financially okay. And if you're not financially okay, the government will assist you. And I'm not against government assistance. We say, in the United States of America, you're not going to starve. It's not going to happen. We have so many comforts. It's unparalleled in human history. And we mostly have cultural acceptance in comparison to other nations. But here's the thing, man. Cultural acceptance can create passivity. Just look at the third world church. Look at the church in Iran. Look at the church in China. They do not have cultural acceptance and they have an urgency to preach the gospel. Which may lead to them being killed. Urgent. The Lord shall return. I believe the church needs to get this urgency to transform people's hearts because look, here's another piece of the puzzle for your political minded people. In a democracy, the people get the leaders they deserve. The French philosopher, Joseph the Maestro. What we get here is this. Come on, man. If you do not like what the government is doing today, it's not my fault. It is my parents' generation's fault. And baby boomers, if you don't like the society that was created for you in the 60s and 70s, it wasn't your fault. It was your parents' fault. We get, that's the beauty of democracy. You get the government you deserve. If you're preaching the gospel and you're transforming communities and people are surrendering themselves to the Lord, a government by the people, for the people, will elect a righteous government. But the church has got it so backwards. Impact the government, impact the government, impact the government. Bro, for the last two generations, if you weren't doing that and you were impacting your local community, the government would be transformed. But that means you have to get in the trench. It means you gotta knock on the door. It means I hear some soup. You're coming to my house and you're going through a hard time. It means you have to get your hands dirty. That to be pierced by Jesus. Nah, I just go to the voting booth and go, what shame. What shame it is. We get a government we deserve. I am planning to leave this earth to create a government by the people, for the people, and for my children that are better than the government that resides over me. And it's not going to happen by me electing certain people, per se. It's going to happen when revival breaks out and people declare righteousness. Christians have been trying to win the war with the wrong tools. And now we're forced to sleep in the bed that we've made. Too much attention on politics, not enough attention on people. And if you put politics before the people, you get this. For people before the politics, you get an expansion of Christianity across the known world. That's what the early church had. And they had it because there's no time to impact government. Because my neighbor down the street is going to die and is going to meet the maker for the first time. And will be thrown into a pit of hell. Unless I do something now. 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 Now.
If you think he's coming like next week, amen. We can like, you can tell me I told you so when we're in the sky, okay? And I'll be like, that's pretty sweet. You're right. Can we lower our guitar even more, please? Sorry. Why am I saying this? Because every single generation thinks through the generation. But but they're talking about a cashless society. Okay, how about the Gold Reserve Act of 1933? Franklin Delano Roosevelt forces you to convert your currency. How about the year 1913, uh, when they began the federal income tax and they take a portion of your income for the first time in American history? Or they develop a central banking system that allows you to be indebted and have a permanent state of credit and debt. generation of World War II when there's a dropping of two atomic bombs where six million Jews are put into the ovens? That is like, Lord, are you coming yet? No. But we have Corona and they're talking about like maybe having a vaccine. He's going to come. Come on. Come on. Come on. Nero takes Christians and lights them on fire to have candles in the back of his house. Jesus is returned, but he didn't. So how dare he return now? You'd have to apologize to every generation before that saw much, much worse. And I personally think there's a lot of things that have to happen. A full restoration of Israel, a building of a third temple, the manifestation of the Antichrist setting himself up to rule. All of the nations of the world surround Jerusalem to seek out her destruction. There's a lot that can happen, and I know, and I know it can happen in the truth and I know it can be quick, but my gut, and I said I'm a minority, it's not happening now. But the day is approaching. Look, every generation, and if you're a generation that thinks that the Lord is returning, shame on you. Because if you believed that Jesus is returning any day now, you'd be living a radically different life. Amen. You wouldn't be going to work. I mean, you'd be like, Jesus is going to return any day now. I need to preach the gospel all day long. Amen. Every generation thinks that Jesus is going to return, but the trick here is only a few actually do something about it. So here's the thing. Well, Dave, okay, if I agree with you, but you don't have to, that I think the Lord is going to take his time with the nation of Israel before he comes back down. If you don't agree with me, or even if you do, it's like, well, so now what? How can it be urgent? How can it be urgent? Really? Like, either the Lord returns to earth in your generation, and we meet him, or you die, and you meet him in heaven. He still returns. You're returning to him. And when you're there, there is going to be a judgment seat. And there's going to be a judgment of works. And whether he comes to earth and set up his kingdom, or you meet him in heaven, you're like, what did you do with your time? What did you do? Uh, come on, man. You might die tomorrow, and you have, you have an account for what you've done on earth. More importantly, your neighbor may meet Jesus for the first time on the wrong side of eternity. Like, I've met Jesus already. Your neighbor has it. You want your neighbor to meet Jesus at the judgment seat? Like, if there ever wasn't a compulsion for an urgency to bring the kingdom, it's that. Amen? You need to clap for something. I mean, come on. Why we sin?
There's a contagious love. There is an empowerment of the Holy Ghost where you're like, I need to show people how unbelievable this guy is. So have you met him, actually? Two, do you actually even love your fellow man? Like, do you love your neighbor as yourself? Do you actually love them the way that you're called to love them? Like, do you love them enough to step out of your comfort zone and to see them saved, healed, delivered, set free? If you're not doing it, it's like you don't love your brother. Right? I was saying I had to like give them the track and be like, hey, old school, like here's the sinner's prayer. I mean, engage with them, witness to them. Look, it's, it's time to get urgent. And as I said, the urgency comes from an unction, an unction of the Holy Ghost. And so, close it up with this. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him? whom they have not believed and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard how shall they hear without a preacher and how shall they preach unless they are sent Father I just come before you right now and I, I repent right now for the western church I repent for my own life of not believing in an urgency to bring the kingdom of God to earth Lord, I repent publicly for not sharing the gospel to my colleagues. Lord, I repent publicly for not stopping in the grocery store to that little old lady that's hailing. And I know you're pulling on my spirit to say, come on, man, pray for her right now. But Lord, I I don't because you know I'm in a rush. I don't because I'm afraid to see that you don't show up and don't heal her and how embarrassing I think. Lord, I publicly repent. I ask that in this body that there be an unction of the Holy Ghost to see the kingdom of God made manifest. But Lord, I also pray that people would do it with love and not judgment and not coercion. That it would be released to just be like normal people. He says, I got good news. I got to tell you about it. Father, I I pray, Lord, that that we would just, as, as a nation, that we would repent trying to uphold Christian structures at the forsaking of changing hearts. Lord, I pray that we repent right now. We repent as a people. We repent as a nation that says, you know what? I put so much emphasis on building up a Christian industry that I've forgotten to change hearts. Our repentance, Lord, of of, of churches and say, I I put so much attention on on bringing a youth group into a place of entertainment to give them a place to go so they would come that I've forsaken, forsaken the importance of sharing the gospel with them, raising them up. Lord, we repent as a people. Father, we pray right now, right now, right now, Father, I pray right now, a corporate prayer, a corporate prayer an unction, be an unction in the spirit by the Holy Ghost to give us an urgency to see the kingdom of God made manifest. Father, I pray for our paradigms and our perspectives to realign with your word. Lord, that we wouldn't be so concerned about where we're going to live or where we're going to be or what we're supposed to do, but in our moment right now, in our moment, we would engage in eternity. Engage the power of the gospel. We say, right now, I shall seek the kingdom of God, and then all of these things shall be added unto you. Yes, Lord. It's not, I need to get a house and then the kingdom. It's not, I need to get a college degree and then the kingdom. It's not, I need to get a better job and then the kingdom. It's not, I need to get healed in the kingdom. It is, you bring forth the kingdom, and then all else shall be added unto you. Come on, we just pray and repent
Thank you.